Let's dig back in. We were talking about feeding the sheep, the topic of preaching. We've already looked at the charge of pastors to preach the word in 2 Timothy 3 and 4. And now we're going to look at uh, the second point we have here. This will be short. Which is the need of churches. And assuming you classes on preaching so we're only going to spend this one session on this pastors to preach the word the responsibility to do that work uh, because we are charged with it and because our churches need it it preaching uniquely serves the needs of our churches if we pick back up second timothy chapter four and we look at verses three and four paul warns us for the time is coming when people will not endure they will not endure sound doctrine. That is, they will not accept sound doctrine or they will not bear with sound doctrine or sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So preaching is the need of churches because people want to avoid the truth rather what they want to hear is what excites them what they want to hear is what suits their fancy people want to hear doctrines tailored to their passions rather than having their passions tailored to sound doctrine they prefer therapeutic over prophetic People want to made to be feel better, be made to feel better about themselves rather than challenged to become someone that they are not. And when this happens, when they prefer the you know itchy ear doctrines over the true doctrines, when this happens, it is disastrous. When a Christian or a church loses their bearings like this, when they care less about God's word with its promises and its prescriptions, and they care more about their preferences then they lose their power, they lose their witness, and they lose their way. Jesus tells us, Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Friends, when there is no word from God addressing us, no word from God calling us to a fundamental change of direction, to a new way of life that is real life, to a, to a true and real Savior who says, come to me. I tell you, the minute a church loses that, it loses its reason for existing. And so we must help cultivate in our churches an expectation around the preaching of God's word. We must cultivate in them a hunger for God's word, a coming with an eager expectation to receive God's word. The ordinary sign that a Christian is drifting from God is they start drifting from his word. At first, they will avoid the truth in very subtle ways. They'll attend on Sunday mornings, 
but they won't really be paying attention to the sermons very much. And their devotional life will be neglected, their time of the word there. The sign of a person drifting from God is they drift from God's word. And where they drift to is they drift to itchy ears. They drift to listening to what they care about, to their preferences, to what they're interested in, to the things of this world that excites their passions, to the things that agree with them. Um, social scientists today have this phrase they use, ideological echo chambers. The big phrase. ideological echo chamber you know what an echo chamber is an echo chamber is where you're in some kind of chamber like a cave and you you can just hear your echoes reverberating all around you so an ideological echo chamber is when you get into an environment where the ideas you already believe in are all you hear and reinforced and so social media for instance creates it thrives off this uh, ideological echo chamber. Uh, you post interest about something, you like interest of a certain kind, and the algorithms of Facebook will just give you more and more uh, people who comment about that kind of a thing, who post, you know, pictures or, or articles about what you're, you, what you like, and you start hearing more and more and more and more and more about what you already agree with and are interested in. And this is what happens with all of us. We, we all, drift towards ideological echo chambers we like. We, we drift towards hearing people say what we want them to say. Um, you know, it's kind of like how we search out things on Google. We search out for what we want to see or hear in Google, right? Like if we want to do um, gardening, you know, and we like the idea of raised beds, then we're just Googling raised beds. We're not Googling the pros and cons usually of raised beds. We're just trying to find people who will tell us what to do, what we want to do, or who tell us the benefits of what we want to do. And that's true of homeschooling, and that's true of politics, and that's true of theology. We just look for like-minded people and like-minded perspectives. Social scientists call this ideological echo chambers. God calls it itchy ears. God just calls it itchy ears. He says we are naturally avoiders of the truth, and so instead we accumulate around us teachers that suit our own passion, teachers who will scratch the itch that we feel to hear what we want to hear, and so we look for parents whose views on parenting reflect and reinforce our own. We look for teachers whose view on money reflects and reinforces our own. We look for lifestyle bloggers whose views on life, work, vocation, cooking, and family all reflect and reinforce our own. We look for leaders, social commenters, and political views that reflect and reinforce our own. We look for authors whose views on God and living the Christian life reflect and reinforce our own. We look for blogs and articles with views that reflect and reinforce what we're already inclined to think or feel. And this is why it is the urgent need of the church to attend to the preaching of God's word. The task of the sermon 
is to create a time and a place for God's word, for God's truth to be authoritatively. It creates a time and a place for God to penetrate our echo chambers and confront our ideologies and our idolatries. It's the place where God's word can renew our mind and direct us down ancient paths. The urgent need of the church is always to hear from God, for him to speak and for us to listen. This is why the Bereans in Acts 17 were so commendable. Uh, in Acts 17, 11, we read, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. That's how we, we, should, we should receive the word, brothers. Even as we're studying the word now, as you attend to the word in your morning devotions, as you go to preaching or listen to preaching on Sunday sermons, we should open the word of God and attend to it with eagerness. God wants to speak with us. God wants to give us truth. God wants to give us light. He wants to direct our paths and establish our steps. The Bereans received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The example of the Bereans are, is instructive to us. We want to cultivate in our church eager desire for God's word being preached. We want them to have anticipation, uh, expectation when they come in to Sunday morning. And so we can help them by, um, by our own attitudes towards the Sunday morning meeting, our own discussions about the importance of uh, preaching, our own comments about that. We can instruct them that really the attending to the preaching of God's word on Sunday morning begins at the very least on the night before, which is when you go to bed and what you read right before bed and then what you read when you get up. Um, we can help them learn to listen attentively to God's word, how to take notes on God's word and then be like the Brians, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And then we can teach them to be earnestly discerning like the Bereans, that they study the scriptures, that they take our sermons and they open the Bible and they say, do I see what he said here? And if so, what difference does that make in my life? Now, I see preaching as kind of just getting our people started on a study uh, of the passage, on an application of that. I'm kind of, I'm getting you a leg up and then you spend the week spending some time digesting it and thinking about how it applies more specifically into your life. Every Sunday, we want our people to have the posture that says, I need to hear from God today, not just in my mind, but in my heart. And so, Pastor, I'm counting on you to open that book and tell me what God says. Tell me what God means. And I, that's, why, that's why every Sunday I start every one of my sermons the exact same way. I say, good morning, church, or good morning, Covenant of Grace Church. Please turn in your Bibles. And then I tell them the passage. Because I want there to be a signal to them every Sunday that we are turning to the word of God. That's why you're here. 
not first for me to tell you an entertaining story, not to give you an introduction that grabs your attention right away. Uh, maybe I'll do some of those things in a minute if it serves the word. But let me tell you first, we are turning to the word of God to hear from God, to study God. That's why we're here. Because their great need is to hear from and be shaped by God's holy word. And I want them to become hungry and I want them to become humble. Because that is the need of the church. John Jewell, the Bishop of Salisbury, back in the 1500s, exhorted his congregation saying, despise not, good brethren, to hear God's word declared. As you tender your own souls, be diligent to come to sermons. And here's why, he says, for that is the ordinary place where men's hearts be moved and God's secrets be revealed. Be the preacher ever so weak, yet is the word of God as mighty as it ever was. And brothers, what a great encouragement that is to us. Be the preacher ever so weak. Be your sermon ever so weak, yet is the word of God as mighty as it ever was. So brothers, preach the word. All right, that's it. Feeding the sheep, the pastor's work of preaching God's word. Um, when I'm preaching on, I mean, I preach on preaching. I preach on the importance of preaching, or I bring that up in sermons often. And so in that, I'm telling them, I'll, I'll say things like, when you're sitting on the preaching of God's word, you should be sitting up and leaning in because God is speaking to you. He deserves your attention and you should have eager expectation. Or I'll exhort them with, with just happy celebrations. Isn't it amazing that God speaks through his word today? So those are like regular comments and applications uh, in sermons um, that I'll do. Um, other things are, you know, we pray for the preaching of God's word every Sunday in our pastoral prayer. So that's the that's one of the other pastors praying. Um, and we're always praying that for the preacher, but also for the congregation to receive God's word. I think that has a way, you know, no matter what we're praying for, if it's people that are sick or for rulers and kings around the world or for the mission of God, that every Sunday we're also praying for the preaching of God's word. That doesn't change. I think that says something to the congregation over time. And it's true. I want to pray for them. Um, I've done a side, like I've in our members meetings, I'll often do, um, a little section where I have like the pastor's thoughts, lead pastor's thoughts, where I'll just share about anything I want to talk about. And I'll often give exhortations to come to the word of God hungry and excited because the Lord is speaking to them. Um, I'm a little more ceremonial when I actually read the word in a Sunday sermon. So I'll tell them, please turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter four. You know, as we continue our study through Ephesians, we're in Paul's letter, blah, blah. Um, so I'll set it up like that. And then I may give an introduction. But when I come to the word, I always say a couple of things. I'm always saying, you know, let's read God's word now. This is God's holy and authoritative word. And then I'll read it. 
And then when I get done, I'll always say, may the Lord bless the preaching and the believing of his word. So I kind of formalize the scripture itself as set apart from the rest of the sermon. It gets its own unique little statements before and after to highlight this is God's word and it's unique in the message. Um, I don't hear the turning in, in Bibles. I don't hear Bibles flipping as much anymore because people use their phones so much. Um, I found it more often the, in the, you know, when I would say like, you know, in the middle of sermon, I'd say, turn over to Romans chapter 10. And I would hear people flip into their Bible and I would make comments like, I love to hear the God's word, the pages of God's word turning. I love to hear you in God's word. Something I don't get to say as much anymore because they're all scrolling. So I don't hear any, I don't hear thumbs moving. Um, but things like that, that I can just even grab, you know, off the cuff to just encourage them for just their active engagement. Um, I rebuke them in preaching sometimes when they're not responding. I'm like, hey, you guys are too quiet this morning. This is good truth. You need to be engaged. Let's get some interaction here. Um, and I'll coach them. I'll say, here's something you can say amen for. Jesus Christ saves today just as much as he did back then. Amen. So I like prep, I kind of prep them into it if I feel like they're struggling some on a Sunday. That's uh, just me trying to help build their faith uh, for God's word. Good. All right. Another major work of the pastor. is equipping, equipping the sheep. Equipping the sheep for the work of ministry. Pastors preach the word of God. They feed the sheep. They also equip the sheep. Um. Back in 1871, uh, the Midwest here in the United States had a horrible drought, and everything was dried out, and everywhere was desperate for rain, including the metropolis, Chicago. Um, but on the evening of Sunday, October 8th, instead of receiving rain, uh, a fire broke out around a barn in Chicago, uh, located on the property of Patrick and Catherine O'Leary. It was on the city's southwest side, and legend holds that the blaze started when the family's cow kicked over a lantern. You know those cows, they are always causing trouble. And this cow kicked over a lantern, supposedly, even though I think the family denied it. That's the legend. What's known is that the fire quickly grew out of control and moved rapidly from the south up into the northeast. The fire burned so hot that it was able to leap over a branch, the southern branch of the Chicago, Chicago River, and destroyed much of the city center. Then it leapt another branch of the river, 
and began consuming the north side of the city. So the fire is so high, so big, so hot, it's shooting up sparks and ash, whatever is falling over to the other side, still hot enough that they can catch things on fire. And industrial factories, prestigious mansions were all alike consumed in the blaze. And this continued for two days until a heavy rain boosted the firefighting efforts. After that, the remains smoldered for days, and eventually it was determined that the fire had destroyed three square miles of Chicago. And this included burning down more than 17,000 buildings and leaving more than 100,000 people homeless. So reconstruction efforts began quickly and spurred significant economic development and population growth. As these architectural geniuses came from around the country to help lay the foundation for a modern city, uh, one that would feature the world's first skyscraper. These architects came to build the future. But more than that, what they really wanted to do was build a name for themselves and for their school of design. And as buildings began to take shape, what emerged with this fascinating landscape of various designs, various monuments to human genius. Why am I telling you all this? Well, because we're going to turn to the letter of Ephesians now. So let me invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter four. And as you turn there, even though you guys spent a lot of time in Ephesians, uh, I want to spend a little bit more time in Ephesians four, because I think this is one of the most important pastoral passages. As we turn to the letter of Ephesians, we're turning to a different kind of architectural plan. One fashioned not for the praise of man's genius, but for the fat or for the praise of God's grace. This is God's divine design for his church. If reading this letter, we see how God's perfect plan stretches from, you guys saw this in your study of it, eternity past to eternity future. And in every phase of design, we see the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Election is through Christ. Redemption is through Christ. Adoption is through Christ. Reconciliation through Christ. All of it is through Christ and all of it to the praise of his glorious grace, Ephesians 1.6. So this is God's master plan. Through Christ, he will showcase his grace. And at the center of it all is a structure on display for the cosmos to marvel at. A structure that will showcase the fullness of Christ and the grace of God. And that structure is the church. There are two passages that really bring this out in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, and he put all things under his, Jesus's feet 
and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus is the head of the church. The church is his body. It is the fullness of him who fills all in all. In Ephesians 3, 7 through 10, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So what we see here is that the church is God's crowning architectural accomplishment. Theologian P.T. O'Brien says the church is God's instrument in carrying out his purposes in the cosmos. Church is God's instrument carrying out his purposes in the cosmos. And John Stott says the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. Is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. His purpose conceived in a past eternity, being worked out in history, and to be perfected in a future eternity, is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church, that is, to call out of the world a people for his own glory. Jesus Christ has said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, verse 18. So the church is the crowning architectural achievement of God. It is the instrument by which he's carrying out his purposes in the world. Jesus has committed to building his church. And yet sometimes when we look at the church, and our own personal experiences in church, it would seem like sometimes the gates of hell are prevailing against God's church. I'm sure you can look around at churches in your context where it seems like hell is at least winning some battles. And made up of sinners, the church being made up of sinners, it's not hard to find things wrong with the church. Its imperfections, its weaknesses, its limitations. With such knowledge, sometimes it's easy for us to wonder if the church is actually the wisest investment of our lives. I love this quote from uh, John, or I mean, um, from Charles Spurgeon. Here's our Spurgeon quote. Spurgeon said, if I had never joined a church, if I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth. Friends, when we are tempted to doubt, the wisdom of God's plan that centers on the church, 
But we're tempted to doubt if the church can, in fact, be to us the dearest place on earth. We must return to the truth of God's word. Yes, the church is not yet what it will be. And here in Ephesians is the divine design, though, for what Jesus is building his church into. It is a church filled with sinners, and yet that is all the better to showcase the God of grace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So in our particular passage here in Ephesians 4, church, here is the blueprint for how God matures us until we reach the measure of his fullness. This is where we see God's plan for how, through the church, Christ will fill all in all. What we see in chapter 1, explained to us in chapter 3, being watched by others, here's how it's happening on the ground, chapter 4. This passage provides insight into the divine building plan for the church of Jesus Christ. It shows us how God is doing it. But also calls us from the fringe into the heart of this contemporary. Here, Jesus Church, for the glory of God's incredible grace. So we want to look at verses, largely we're going to look at verses 6 through 16, but I want to begin reading back up in verse 1 and spend some time there too. So Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. In this passage, we want to look at four ways in which Christ is building his church. Four ways Jesus Christ is building his church. And the first is, with gracious gifts. With gracious gifts. Let me draw your attention first to a significant transition that takes place. Chapter 4, verse 6, right? One through all and in all. Obviously, intended repetition here now note in verse seven paul's use of the phrase each of us but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of christ's gift so here paul is transitioning from all of us in verse six to each of us in verse seven so he's transitioning from the unity of the church in verse six to the diversity of the church in verse seven, to pick up a theme we had earlier, unity in verse six to diversity in verse seven. We're, tra we're transitioning from the corporate in verse six to the individual in verse seven. In verse six through 16, Paul moves from corporate to individual back out to corporate again. So he's going to go from corporate down to individual back out to corporate. There's a progression here that pivots on each individual member of the church recognizing they have received grace from Jesus Christ. Brothers, this is one of your biggest tasks as a pastor is to help your church see every member has been given grace from Jesus Christ for the purpose of building up his church. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Here we learn something about how Christ is building his church. He gives grace to all of us, and he doesn't leave anybody out. Oh, my goodness. Make sure you emphasize that with your church. Jesus has given grace to each one of us, and he does not leave anybody out. Every Christian has received something according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, John Stott makes a really helpful distinction in his study of this passage. When we read in verse 7 that we are all recipients of grace, we need to distinguish between two kinds of grace. There is saving grace, and there is serving grace. Saving grace and serving grace. So Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 is saving grace, but you have received grace. Ephesians 4, our passage 7 to 16 is service grace. Every one of us who have been genuinely reconciled to God have been given not just saving grace, but serving grace a grace to serve. These graces differ. There is diversity by design. There is diversity in the body of Christ, not only in personality or temperament or background or ethnicity, but also in the grace that is given as gifts to the church. And in this, everyone has grace to contribute. And I am just always trying to impart fresh faith in my church because I find there is so much unbelief in connection with this topic. So much unbelief in our churches regarding this topic. You want to constantly encourage your people. Do they have, do they believe, do they have faith that God has imparted to them grace that this church needs? No matter how small or big, whether it's one or 27 gifts, doesn't matter. Each person has been given something this church needs. This is why regularly studying, discipling people through 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, where the gifts are listed out, is a very helpful exercise. These lists are not exhaustive, I don't think, but they're helpful in people thinking through what kinds of grace God has given them. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and 1 Peter 4. Christ has not given the same grace to everyone, and neither has he given the same measure of grace to everyone. But everyone has received grace for the purpose of building a church. Jesus has not left anybody out, and this is one of the major ways he builds his church. He gives grace to every believer for the purpose of building up his body. And Paul goes into a lot of detail about this, about how this gets, or about how he works this out in verses 11 through 16. But in verse 8, he pretty abruptly interrupts his train of thought to make this kind of surprising theological aside. Do you notice that in our passage? Look again at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure 
of Christ's gift. And then there's verses 8, 9, and 10 about Jesus's ascension. Let's just insert it in here. But if you pick up back into verse 11, it's like verse 7 could have just as easily went right into 11. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I mean, that works, doesn't it? Verse 7 and 11 are clearly connected. Each has been given grace, a measure of the gift. He gave these men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, to help equip the saints for that work of ministry. So they're easily connected. So the question is, is why in the world does Paul insert these three verses about the ascension? What's his reasoning? Well, let me assure you, this aside is not accidental, as if Paul ever does anything accidentally in Scripture. But this is very intentional. Paul is bringing something to our attention that if we neglected, it would be to our detriment. Remember a few minutes ago, I said that in every phase of God's divine design for the church, we see the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And that is what this is, these three verses. That's the point of Paul's aside here on the ascension. He wants to make sure we get what he means in verse 7 when he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. You see, our attention is easily drawn to the fact that grace is given to each one of us, and that's understandable. But the theological phrase of particular weight here in this passage is not what we're drawn to, but is this, according to the measure of Christ's gift. And now, with that in mind, we look at verse 8. Therefore, it says, therefore, whenever we see a therefore, we need to ask what it's there for, right? That's the little tricky phrasing with that one. When you see a therefore, you ask what it's there for. And verses 8 and 10 are telling us how it came to be that Jesus Christ gave grace to his church. Therefore, verse 8, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Parenthetically, verse 9 and 10, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. The theme here, the theme here is Christ's ascension. And we're told here in this quote from Psalm 68 that Jesus ascended on high. He ascended on high. Now, where I come from, so I was born and raised in the state of Indiana here in the United States, and Indiana is known for its basketball uh, is basketball a, much of a thing in Africa? Do you guys care much about basketball? Are mm. more into soccer. Yeah. So if you could pick up soccer, 
into your hands, a soccer ball, and jump up and put it into a goal. It's basketball, right? Essentially the same thing. Essentially the same thing, right? Well, go with my go with my illustration here about basketball. In basketball, they talk about a man's vertical jump, how high he can jump. And I grew up in the Michael Jordan years when Michael Jordan was the man. He was known for his vertical leap. He kept us on the edge of our seats, all of us holding our collective breast because the man could fly through the air. I mean, he could fly through the air with the greatest of ease. At least it looked that way. Now, today, I live in Akron, Ohio, and Akron, Ohio is the birthplace of LeBron James, arguably the best known basketball player in, in today. LeBron James, aka King James, also known for a, a pretty good vertical leap, had a ver- has a vertical leap of 44 inches. Anthony Webb, aka Spud Webb, has a vertical leap of a respectable 46 inches. But Michael Jordan, aka Air Jordan, aka his airness, has an incredible vertical leap of 48 inches. So that means Jordan gets a full four foot vertical leap. Four foot leap that puts his head six inches above a basketball goal, a basketball rim. So Michael Jordan got up there. But Jesus, <laughs> upon his resurrection, he ascended on high, right? He ascended up into the heavenly places. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He ascended far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus ascended as head over all things for the purpose of filling all in all. And friends, let me tell you, that is getting up there. That is a vertical leap. And we're talking about some serious hang time he had as well. Because friends, he's still up there. He's still up there ruling over everything and interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. He's still up there and will be until his appointed time to return. So Jesus has ascended on high. And when he ascended, we are told he led a host of captives. Now, that's interesting. What in the world is that talking about? He led a host of captives. I love this. It's a reference, I believe, to all the Old Testament saints who had died. The Old Testament believers who had trusted in a coming Messiah that God would send. They were waiting on the coming Messiah when they died. These are the Old Testament believers who died and went to Sheol, which is the Hebrew name for the place of the dead. We read about this like in the Psalms, you know, going to Sheol, or we're told Jonah went down into Sheol. Uh, The Greek name for this is Hades. Let's get into a little theology, guys.
you guys don't mind significant theological asides, right? I mean, Paul does them, so we should be doing it too, right? So, Old Testament, Hebrew idea, Sheol, place of the dead, place of the dead. The Greeks had a word for it, Hades. Hades. Blair all that moment. It's a little better. Old Testament Sheol. Greeks called it Hades. In the Apostles' Creed, there's a line about Jesus that states what? He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. So in the Apostles' Creed, it says he descended to hell. He descended to hell. Well, that word hell is not the same word, the word that used in the Apostles' Creed. The word hell, minute. So, Apostles' Creed uses the word hell. But I do not think this word means what you think it means. So this word hell is not the New Testament word for hell. The New Testament word is Gehenna. Two ends. Yeah. New Testament word for hell is Gehenna. This is the place of final judgment. This is the place of torment and separation from God. But the word in the creed for hell, that we translate hell, actually means, is actually the word for Hades, which is the word for Sheol. So when it says he descended to hell, what it's really saying is he descended to Hades, he descended to Sheol, he descended to the place of the dead. So it's not saying Jesus actually descended to hell, the place of damnation. It's saying that he descended to the place of the dead. He didn't descend further or didn't descend into hell as if he needed to suffer more than he had suffered on the cross. When he says it is finished, Jesus means what he says. It is finished. But Jesus did that did descend down to Sheol, to Hades, to the place of the dead, which is not really an unpleasant place, and yet it wasn't heaven as well. This is how the Jews thought about it. Those or those there were still, they thought of the dead, the place of the dead, as a place of, 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 of waiting until the Messiah came to take them to heaven. They thought of it as this place of death. Uh, basically, and they thought of Sheol as kind of having, uh, I need more markers. They thought of Sheol as kind of, um, this is a really, really rude way or a simplified way of putting it. There was a place for the, the believers and a place for the unbelievers, essentially. With kind of a chasm in between. And all this constituted Sheol, the place of the dead. 
you guys remember is it Luke 18 where there's the um the uh the what's that was it Lazarus and that rich guy yeah and they're talking back and forth right there's a chasm between them but they're talking back and forth right and so the Jewish understanding was well, there's a chasm between them, but the believers and the unbelievers are in the same place. One is enjoying this nice place. It's kind of like the waiting room for heaven. It's this good place. It's an enjoyable place, but it's not quite heaven yet. Why isn't it heaven yet? Because Jesus Christ, the ascended one, the one who came as a man and rose back up as king and savior, he's not there in his full humanity yet. He's not there in his full glory yet. So it's not heaven completely yet. They're in this waiting room for heaven because heaven's not ready yet because Jesus isn't there yet. So they're in this nice waiting place where the unbelievers are in this place of torment, waiting to be sent to the final judgment to Gehenna, to this worse and horrible place. And so Jesus descended into the place of death, to the place of, this is what Paul is teaching here, he descended to this place of death to proclaim his victory. This is what First Peter is talking about. When he says, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And when he rose from the dead, he led captivity captive. He took the Old, Saint, Old Testament saints with him. This is why we're told, after his, um, after his death, there were spirits coming up out of the ground and going through the towns of Jerusalem because he was leading them back up into heaven. In Revelation 1, 8, Jesus declares, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I hold the keys of death and the place of death. I've not only released men from eternal death, I've released them from the holding place of death, the place of death. Millard Erickson comments, we have seen that the death of Jesus was the low point in his humiliation. The overcoming of death through the resurrection was the first step back in the process of his exaltation. This is particularly significant. For inflicting death was the worst thing sin and the power of sin could do to Christ. Yet, in the inability of death to hold him, it symbolized the totality of his victory. I love this. What more can the forces of evil do if someone whom they have killed does not stay dead? Isn't that great? What more can the forces of evil do if someone whom they have killed does not stay dead? What, can, what more can they do? Jesus is triumphant. And not only does he not stay dead, but when he ascended on high, he also led a host of captives. So, aka, he freed a bunch of death's prisoners. He stole the keys and set them free. That's the triumph of Jesus, and yet still there's more. In celebration of his total, total victory, we read here, he also gave gifts to men. 
So upon his ascension, Jesus's first regal order was let there be gifts given to men. Let there be gifts of grace that can be used to build one another up. Gifts of grace that can be used by the church, which is his body, the fullness of him to fill all in all. So friends, Christ is, Christ is building his church with gifts of grace. And here's why we need to see this. Here's the application. Paul is saying, look, here's how you need to understand the grace you have been given. First and foremost, every use of the grace. Oh man, guys, if you can get your church to see this. Every use of the grace you've been given is a declaration and demonstration that Jesus Christ really is exalted and has given gifts to men. Every use of the grace that we, that we use or that we have been given, every use of it is a declaration and demonstration. Jesus Christ really has raised victorious, been exalted victorious, and rained down gifts for men. So we're not to be preoccupied with the grace that we have. We're not to be preoccupied with the gifts we have been given. They're not for our glory. They are for his glory. They don't express our greatness, but his greatness. They don't manifest our power, but his power. They are attestations of our triumph, but his triumph. They are first about us building a church, but they are first and foremost about how Christ is building his church in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. First Peter 4.11. Guys, the Lord is building his church with gracious gifts. And we want to help our church see that. All right, so we are working on the work of a pastor to equip the sheep, and we're looking at Ephesians 4, four ways Christ is building his church. We just saw it with gracious gifts. He gives each believer uh, a measure of grace for the building of the church. We want to look at point two, which really zeroes in on your guys' call to pastoral ministry. He builds his church with gifted leaders, gifted leaders. Now we're ready to look at verse 11. Now we're ready to look at verse 11. And he gave, here's the grace of Christ continuing. So he's the disposition of Jesus to give. This is his nature. He's the generous one. And here the one who gave himself to ministry and gave his life as a sacrifice and gave us his Holy Spirit also gives gifts to the grace to the church, but grace that manifests itself in specific gifts. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, or that's pastors, right? We talked about that, pastor is shepherd. It's in the verb form, uh, normally pastoral or pastors, but this is using the phrase, the shepherds and teachers. So in verse 7, we saw that the ascended Jesus gives grace to each of us individually. But here in verse 11, we find his grace also comes to us in the form of gifted leaders. Leaders whom he gives to all of us collectively. So first we have... 
crank it and we sort of swing this around. Goodbye, Shield. Goodbye, Hades. Christ has set us free. Death wears your sting. That's right. That's right. All right, so he's given us apostles. Right? So apostles, at least two uses in scripture. We talked about this. There's the capital A, the 12, and then there's the little A, right? Um, and so this one refers to an office, um, an office in the church. It's also used in the New Testament. Apostle is to refer uh, a more um, to refer to like some of Paul's co-workers. And so we see it's not only just an office, but it's a gifting. It's a gifting as well for extra local ministry. We also see it lo lo um, listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 28. As a gift. Those especially gifted to plant and establish churches. Gifted at opening up new areas for Christ and strengthening the ministry of Christ there. Uh, these are men who are gifted apostolically, small a. And so in the New Testament, we might look at Barnabas, Silas, maybe Epaphras as people gifted as apostles. So in Ephesians, we're talking about Ephesians 4, we're talking here about the gifting, not the office. Second, the prophets. We're given prophets. Here again is a word that has a different use in scripture. Two uses in scripture, right? So back in Ephesians 2.20 and chapter 3, verse 5, Paul spoke of foundational prophets. Probably not Old Testament prophets, but New Testament, New Testament prophets that help write the scriptures. Or maybe there are prophets who saw God, God's intent to uh, include the Gentiles. So that's one sense where it's kind of like an office. Someone who had an official role establishing revelation authoritatively. However, the construction, the Greek construction of the word prophet here in 411. So the construction in 411, our passage, is different than earlier in chapter 2 and 3 of Ephesians, which suggests a different use of the word prophet, a broader reference to the gift of prophecy, which is also prevalent in the New Testament. Prophecy is a gift where God gives an impression, a revelation for encouragement to encourage or upbuild the body of Christ, the church. They are non-authoritative words that are tested by the authoritative word of Christ. And so we see this in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Third is evangelist. Third is evangelist. These men were men who were gifted to build the church through the proclamation of the gospel. So in the New Testament, we see Philip. One of the seven called an act sick to be a deacon 
He was also a gifted evangelist who helped take the gospel to the Samaritans and led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. Fourth, there are pastor teachers, pastors and teachers. There is some uncertainty as to whether pastors and teachers refer here to two different ministry roles or whether the reference is to a single shepherd teacher ministry role. Paul uses a, a Greek conjunction at the end of this list that joins these two words more closely um, together than the other ones in the list. Uh, and so I, with many people, assume that he is combining them. You know, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, teachers, pastors slash teachers. Um, but you can see them as two or you can see them as one. doesn't really matter. Regardless, these men are men who care for and instruct God's people with his word. All right. So four gifts, specific leaders of the church. Gifted leaders. The ascended Christ gives gifts to the church, and those gifts are men gifted to establish churches, gifted to lead churches, gifted to grow churches, gifted to care for and instruct churches. Men whose gifts, each one of them, their gifts are governed by God's word. And men whose responsibility includes then not just teaching, you know, I mean, establishing churches, planting churches, not just giving encouraging words, not just preaching the gospel evangelistically, not just teaching and caring for people, but also includes the work of equipping the saints for ministry. So this is our topic, right, for this lecture. Verses 12 through 14. Well, let's begin in 11 for context. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and ministry. Why? Or what for? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. So one main purpose of leadership is to prepare and equip God's people for the work of ministry. Through teaching, through training, listen to this. Leaders don't monopolize ministry. Leaders multiply ministry. You want a pastor or a leadership principle? There's one for you. Good leaders, faithful leaders, fruitful leaders don't monopolize, but multiply ministry this is what moses did in exodus 18 this is what jesus did when he called the 12 and he equipped them and sent them out and the 22 
We don't monopolize ministry. We multiply it. Uh, John Wimber has written, all too often, Christians expect pastors to emulate secular helping professions. We expect medical doctors to treat us, not train us to treat ourselves. We expect lawyers to advise us, not train us to solve our, problem, our own problems. Hence, we expect pastors to serve us, not train us to do the work of ministry or the work of serving. So we don't want to emulate secular professions in this. We appreciate secular professions. Um, when I go to the dentist, I'm very concerned that he is trained. I'm very concerned that he is going to work on my teeth, but I'm not concerned. I do not want him to, to teach me how to work on my own teeth. I do not want him to train me about how I should be my own dentist. I don't want to emulate him in that regard. And yet, that's the exact kind of mindset people often bring to the church. They think of their tithe as a way of paying the pastor to do the work of ministry for them. But this has more to do with the business model than it does the biblical model. The way Jesus builds his church is he gives gifted leaders to the church who equip the church who help them to discern and develop and deploy the particular gifts the ascended Christ has given to them for the purpose of the body of Christ. That's what leaders do. We don't monopolize ministry. We multiply it. <clears throat> so practically speaking, A helpful little way that I think about how I help equip church members. I help them to discern the grace in their life, how they're to be contributing to the body of Christ here. Right? So there are some needs like being a part of the welcoming team, the hospitality team. You know, the people that are there, the greeters at the door saying, welcome, thanks for coming to our church, come on in. Um, that takes relatively little gifting. You have to be a warm body who can smile at people. Great. So that works for a lot of people. Then you have things like teaching. That takes more profound gifting. And so what you're trying to do is help people discern where are they gifted? What grace is there in their life that can be used to build up the body of Jesus Christ? You can do this through teaching series on the gifts, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, 1 Peter. Um, most often, I just do this through discussions with people. And it's just discipleship. And by that, I don't mean having a discipleship meeting. I just mean meeting and talking with them or talking with them on church after Sunday morning, 
And I'm just, I'm regularly trying to figure out from my church. I mean, this is what I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find out for people. Um, are you involved besides coming on Sunday mornings? Are you involved in community group? That's our small group ministry, our fellowships. And are you serving somewhere in the church? Because really serving is where we're getting at with, with gifting more often. And that's constantly what I'm trying to make sure a healthy member is involved in the fellowship and is serving in the church. And if they're not serving in the church, then I want to get them connected to a way that they can serve in the church. And so that can be as simple as me just asking, what are you interested in? What do you see yourself doing? Here are some service ministries that we have at the church. Any of these, you know, strike an interest in you. Sometimes I discern things in people. I say, hey, you know, you just gave that announcement up there. You were really good at explaining what you explained. Maybe there's a teaching gift here. Have you ever thought about teaching? So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of drawing out. I'm helping them to discern. I'm helping them to identify things. Uh, a lot of the time, here's how it happens a lot of the time. People come to me and say, Pastor, I'd really like to see our church do more for fostering and adoption. And usually they're saying that because they want me to pick up the banner for that ministry and do more about it. And so I always just turn those conversations on their head. I say, well, that's great. What are you going to do about it? And they usually kind of laugh and they say, oh, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do about it. And I'm like, well, this is, you've got a burden for it. This is your part of the body of Christ. Like, what, what do you think we could be doing that you could help us with? Or why don't you go away and think about it and let's meet and talk? Usually I'm just grabbing a hold of something they're passionate for. And I'm saying, great, you do it. You help add that to the body of Christ here. So we help them to discern. And then we help them to develop that gift. We help to, them to grow in it, to be better at it, to do it with excellence. And we make sure they're deployed out, that they're out there doing it, that they're out there serving I kind of pride myself on the fact, I guess, that hopefully in a humble way, That's good. that, uh, yeah, in just a second, there's a lot of people that will talk about, you know, well, I'm doing this in the ministry because I talked to Pastor Jace about it, and he said, what are you going to do about it? Um, I love that there's a lot of people that do things in our church now because all I did was simply flip it back on them and say, what are you going to do about it? Uh, and they've taken the burden that God gave them and helped develop something in the church for it, and we're all the better for it. So four ways Christ is building his church with gracious gifts, with gifted leaders, with acts of service. What do leaders equip for? What are we equipping people for? Verse 12 says the work of ministry, the work of ministry. Well, that's broad. Um, what does that entail? Well, it's too varied to answer that, but this includes that a church needs everything that a church needs to grow. The nature of the word, or the nature of, of what's being talked about, the work of ministry, what is all included in the work of ministry? Well, the word ministry, the work of ministry, the word ministry 
in the Greek, this word means is the same word for service or to serve. So the work of ministry is acts of service. This is what Jesus uses to build his church. The church is not where people are, is not where people should go because people are obligated to meet all of our needs. Leaders are not obligated to meet everybody's needs. Leaders equip people for the work of ministry. Church is where people go to serve and mature in Christ. And maturity in Christ runs down the path, not of being a consumer, but of being a contributor. When people initially come to your church, particularly as new converts, they are going to come in a kind of consuming stage. They're gonna be consumers. And that's legitimate for a while. They need to be taught, they need to be fed, they need to be cared for, they need to be trained, they need to be equipped. But in time, the goal is not that they remain perpetually in the state of consumption. In time, the goal is that they become contributors. They go from consuming to being more of a contributor. This is why sometimes people talk about like their church is kind of getting boring or, you know, I'm just not giving, getting as much out of church as much. Uh, well, I would say, well, that's because you've, you're still acting like a consumer largely. You're not challenging yourself to contribute in a way that really challenges you to give yourself away in acts of service, to lay down your life, um, that challenges you to stretch your gifting, that challenges you to suffer for other people. Now, if you're not doing that, well, then yeah, church just gets boring. If it's always consume, 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 uh, you have to be giving as well. Um, Bruce Shelley has written a great little quote or a big quote. In recent years, Americans have chosen churches not so much to meet with God and surrender to his ways as to satisfy some personal need. I know this is about American churches, but I hope it applies in some way to you guys as well. Unlike the rich young ruler in the Gospels, church, church attenders seldom ask, what must I do? They are far more, far more likely to ask, what do I get out of this? Contrary to what some American Christians seem to suggest, biblical Christianity is much more than a momentary, instantaneous decision. It may begin that way, but the Christian life, as the Bible describes it, takes time, discipline, work, encouragement, habit, and Christian community. In America's inward-directed culture, this means that every congregation must challenge its members to be more than mere consumers of religion. The church was never designed to permanently be a haven to those who are terminally addicted to self-interest. That's a great last line. The church was never designed to permanently be a haven to those terminally addicted to self-interest. So a mature church is a church made up of hardworking servants. You want to know what a, a mature church is? It's a church made up of hardworking servants, a church whose members serve with the grace they have received for the glory of God. And of course, this was modeled no better than Jesus, than by Jesus himself. As we saw uh, yesterday, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So it's not enough to help people discern or develop their gifts, but we must also get them to deploy them in acts of service, in work of service to build up the church. And then lastly, Uh, no. no words. Christ is building his church with loving truth. With loving truth. Verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the ascended Christ has given to every believer grace, not just for acts of service, but also grace to speak the truth in love to one another. And good leaders equip their church to this task as well. This is why we labor, as we've already stalled, in preaching and teaching sound doctrine. And this is why at my church, we structure our community groups to fellowship around the passage that was preached at our Sunday gathering. Speaking the truth in love is the regular ministry of the word that should exist between our members. And your job as a pastor is to help facilitate and equip your church for this ministry of speaking the truth in love, in fellowship, and in accountability groups. And so I would encourage you guys to be thinking about, as you're a pastor, you want to create context uh, where not only the word is preached on Sunday mornings in the, in the Lord's Day gathering, but also discipleship classes, also um, men's and women's ministries like we talked about, certainly small group ministry that we were talking about, um, any kind of context, leadership development, different kinds of courses, where it's not just a time to get together and see how you're doing, but it is a time to make sure that the word is open and people are given truth and equipped in ways to speak it in love. We constantly want to help people speak the truth in love. Again, I just to reiterate this, a big part of how we do this here is the way that we structure our community groups, our small group ministry. Um, they meet, our small groups meet together to discuss the word that was preached the Sunday before. And the small group leader's job is to help facilitate that discussion. Um, I don't really like the idea that small group leaders are kind of the front line of pastoral ministry, that they're kind of like, you know, junior pastors and they do a lot of pastoral work. Um, I think that puts a lot on them. Uh, I just want them to be able to help facilitate discussion and discipleship amongst the group 
as they speak the truth in love to one another, as they look at the word, they study it, they open up each other's lives, and they speak that truth into each other's lives. In conclusion, what we learn in Ephesians 4 is that each of us is to be a joint of supply in the body of Christ, connected, strengthened, and used to strengthen the church of Jesus Christ. Christ has given each of us grace for service, and he has given leaders to the church, you guys, to equip the church for acts of service and ministering the word in love. And this is how Jesus builds his church, through an every member ministry. Jesus builds his church through an every member ministry. Every member deployed by their pastors to use the grace that they have been given to build up the church. But this does not construct a monument to human genius or human gifting, but instead constructs a monument to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's all of grace for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.